Good morning. Does that song resonate with you? Is it hard to be in the moment or do you find it easy? You're like, what song was that? You're someplace else, right? The irony of the moment. Check in Facebook, right? We live in that reality. And that's what we want to talk about today, kind of the power of the moment and what does that mean for us in this way of peace. My name is Ryan. By the way, if you're a guest this morning, thank you for being here at Crossroads. I want to thank everybody for tuning in online today. The weather here in northern Colorado is a little shaky. Got half an inch of snow. I know it terrifies people. Okay. No, it's nice and cold and wet and slick and nasty. So uh, thanks for tuning in. I, can we just recognize that what we do here on Sunday mornings is, a, is somewhat complex and takes a lot of folks. And on a day like today, you have a lot of people that can't make it. Uh, and so can we just give all of our tech people, our musicians, everybody who is here to help get the parking lot ready as best as we could, that we're out shoveling snow. Can we give them a great big hand this morning? Yeah. Yeah, so if you were out there shoveling, getting the parking lot ready, if you're greeting, if you're here running tech, they were having all kinds of tech just shorthanded. So it's great. I think musicians out, so, and it still happens. So that's good. It's good, good, good. So we're in this series, The Way of Peace, where we're talking about a rule of life, right? And a rule of life are some rules that we live by to give us some guardrails, right? And I know we don't like the word rules. We all are too mature for that. We don't need rules. And a good sign of mature people is that we don't need rules, but the reality is they exist under the surface, right? And so these are kind of gentle reminders. And so that first week, three weeks ago, we said that a Jesus-centered life is a peace-centered life, that if we just say, oh, I want to live Jesus-centered, that could mean all kinds of things. And I know a lot of Jesus-centered lives that really aren't good for much good in the world, if I can be honest with you. Uh, my life at times is like that, right? And so we said, Jesus said that the, the peacemakers are going to be called children of God. And we really started this with our Christmas series where we looked at uh, what was said about Jesus, that he was this dawn from on high that would light a path of peace, right? And so our, our second week, we talked about the first rule. Rule number one was to daily choose to follow Jesus. Now, that can seem strange, but we said that means to walk a narrow path of loving mercy, of doing justice, and living sacrificially. Another way we can think about that is daily choose to forgive, daily choose to include, right? Daily choose to love. We make those daily choices, and that's what it means to follow Jesus. How many of y'all are glad that going to church doesn't mean you're following Jesus? See, you're not, because you're in church, and you're like, wait a second. <laughs> I thought I was getting points for today, right? It's a part of it, right? And part of daily choosing is to tune in and be a part of it, right? And then the second thing we said last week was to, the second rule was that we were going to daily listen to wisdom, wisdom, the spirit of wisdom. And that meant we were going to work hard for knowledge and then use it to rewrite the five unacceptable truths. That's what it means to listen to wisdom, right? And so this week we want to talk about this idea of being mindful. We want to talk about really this word prayer, dun, 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 right? Uh, how many football fans we got in the house tuning in online? Hit the like button if you're watching. If you're out in the atrium, you can shout football. The championship games are today, right? How many of you were watching the game on January 2nd when DeMar Hamlin uh, had that really terrible, terrible injury, uh, that just freak incident that hit heart failure, cardiac arrest, like seven minutes of CPR on the field, kind of the game was canceled, and the world just kind of stopped. You know, football permeates culture so much here in America. By football, I mean the real game, Simon. Um, and uh, <laughs> so, uh, 
Um, I don't know if you know it or not, Simon's British, so it's, but, uh, you know, and, and there's this moment where everybody's just like watching, and, and everybody's praying in that moment, right? And, and during the next few days, we saw kind of this strange phenomenon where there was lots of public prayers for Damar and his family, and we would have sportscast anchors praying on television, right? And, and you would have like voices from the Christian community being very loud about how wonderful this was. Look at people are praying, and prayer works, and then when DeMar went home, there was all these celebrations, and we had particularly loud voices from the American Evangelical Church just talking about, look at the power of prayer. We need more prayer, and, and, and really kind of putting people up on pedestals that prayed on television. And, and I thought, okay, but wait a second. Like, that same day on January 2nd, thousands of people all over the world died. And they died while their loved ones sat next to the bed and prayed. Did prayer not work then? And that's all I could think about was, was I'm, I think it's wonderful that Damar is recovering. I think it's fantastic. But there's something really strange about this word prayer. Because we look at it and we say things like prayer worked when Damar recovers, but we don't say prayer doesn't work when a person we love doesn't experience healing when a tragedy hits. And, and that, to me, is worth saying out loud. And that, to me, is worth examining what we actually do with and how we think about prayer. So, is prayer just this thing that we, we do to try and get this being that lives out there to pay attention to us down here? Is there this transcendent entity, what we call God, who's distant, kind of inactive, but when millions of people start to pray, well, then God's like, oh, gosh, just wish they'd leave me alone, find whatever you want, go for it. And that's almost, honestly, if we really dig in, if we really deconstruct what happened, our actions, while our words might not say that, our actions actually think that. And, and so, is, is it just this burden, this task that we have? And if we do it right, then we'll move and motivate God to do what we want. And if we just, just think about it for a second, it, it really is clear that prayer is a tricky subject, right? When we start talking about talking to God, and we all have feelings about it, right? Even the guys in the room, you've got feelings about it. In my Facebook feed, I'm now starting to see all this stuff, like men have feelings too, as soon as I read it, I just start crying. I'm like, yeah, we do. We absolutely do. We do, and I need to express them. So let me ask this question. When you hear the word prayer, what do you feel? Right, so just in this moment, right, like I say prayer. Or maybe I get really aggressive and say, you should. I should all over you. You should pray. Well, what do you feel then? Like, what is it that we feel? And if we're honest, if we're really honest, there's going to be a spectrum of feelings from like positive to neutral to negative. Some of us maybe feel intimidated. Like there was a moment, you're a church person, you signed up for that small group that they said everybody needs to be in a small group. You can't possibly love Jesus or do good in this world if you don't have a small group that you're meeting with once a week, plus a volunteer thing, plus going to church on Sunday, plus doing the Sunday night, plus make sure your kids are in church on Wednesday night. That was like my childhood, by the way. So 
maybe you feel intimidated because you went to that group and they were like, you could just go and sit down. Then all of a sudden at the end, they were like, we're going to close in prayer. Hey, uh, Tim, why don't you pray? And you're like, uh, nobody says going to pray out loud. And so maybe you hear people praying and you're like, oh my gosh, that was so beautiful. I could never do that. Right? Like it's this, this beautiful thing. And so you kind of feel intimidated by it. Because let's face it, if you Google the word like books on prayer on Amazon, you're going to get thousands and thousands and thousands of really big books, many of which I've read on prayer. That right there is like, forget it. I'm out. If it's that complicated, we shouldn't have to do it. If, I mean, that's, I'm just saying, there's more books written on prayer than algebra. So maybe you feel intimidated. Maybe, maybe some of us feel a little triggered by the word prayer. Because maybe you have this past history where prayer was used to heal you. Prayer was used to try and change you, to release you of a devil or a demon. And it was really just who you were, how you were created. But you didn't fit into the mold of whatever that community of faith said you were supposed to be. Maybe you were too strong of a leader and had the wrong gender for that community. And so you were prayed to be more submissive. And so when you hear the word prayer, you have this imagination, you have this experience of, of people over you trying to talk you out of being who God created you to be in your identity, whether it be your gender, your sexuality, or your leadership, or whatever it might be. And so when you hear the word prayer, that's what you think of, and it kind of triggers you. And it sets you back into a space of pain and hurt, and you say, nope. Some of us feel frustrated. Frustrated because you say, well, I've tried that. And you're not even sure what that means to say you've tried it, but you just know there's something about it that just doesn't sit right with you. Because you had someone in your family you loved that's sick, or you lost your job, or you thought you were going to lose your job, and, and there were all these things going on, and so you thought, prayer, I've got to get serious, and I, want, I need this in my life, and I, and I need to experience God here, but nothing happens. Or maybe you've, you've prayed, and, and you've tried to say, oh, I'm going to sit down and just try and think and talk, and your mind races, and you, you just get up from it feeling frustrated, like you've done something wrong. You're frustrated. These are all very real and authentic and true and, and, and very reasonable experiences and feelings to this word prayer. Now, maybe I didn't say what you feel. So here's the deal. I'm going to give you, it's like bingo today. You get a free space on your talk notes. Now, if you're not a talk notes person, here's the thing I want you to do. Like, just cover it up so your neighbor doesn't see it. This private moment between you and you and Jesus or whoever. What do you feel when you think, I'm going to give you 30 seconds just to just close. It's like, when I think of the word prayer, I feel, what is that? Just take 30 seconds. If you're not a talk notes person, just in your own heart. Say, what comes from? Maybe it's joy. Maybe you, you feel a deep sense of intimacy and connection. But that's wonderful. There's nothing wrong. That's great. What is it that you feel? It's an important question. Because hidden in the question of how I feel about prayer and my experience with prayer is our understanding of the purpose of prayer. Like, why do we do it? What's it all about? And that's important because our understanding of prayer, this idea of connection and communion with the universe, with God, whatever words you choose to use, you know I don't really care too much about words, right? Whatever you call the South, the birds still fly there, right? Doesn't matter what you call it, it's the truth of it, right? The birds fly south. You can call it north. Oh, birds fly north. It's still south, right? There's still a trueness to it, right? No matter what you call it. And so our understanding of prayer actually shapes and can shape dramatically our understanding of the purpose of God in our lives. 
So if we think of prayer as this opportunity to come and, and, and bring our needs, our desires, our wants, then the purpose of God is to meet our needs, desires, wants, maybe to shape what they are. If the purpose of prayer is to understand the world, then God is here to help me understand the world. Right, so what we think about prayer, if it's that idea of divine connection, connection with what is really real, what is ultimately sustaining and holding everything, it's an important question. And it will guide and shape what we think about God for good or for bad or for wisdom or for unwise ways of thinking. And so when I think about prayer and I think about this purpose, I like to just think about Jesus with this. Because Jesus was a man who walked this earth. And one thing I believe truly about Jesus, and I have no doubt about this, is that Jesus was a historical, fully functioning human being. Now, theology and faith says not only was he fully human, he was fully God. Now, you can fig- try and figure that one out all you want. We've been wrestling that one to the ground for about 2,500 years, okay? But what I know for sure is that Jesus was fully human, which means the range of experience that we all have with prayer, Jesus had. I have to believe that. I have to believe it. So I like to look at Jesus and say, what does Jesus talk about when he talks about intimacy with God, prayer? Now, a long time ago, we did a series called uh, uh, Believing Like Jesus. And one of the questions we asked during that series was, what does Jesus believe about prayer? And ultimately, I spent about two hours on that message probably to say this one thing. Jesus believed prayer mattered. So he did it. And that's honestly, that's why I, I just, I, I hold the faith that it matters and I do it. But there's something I want to dig into a little bit more with Jesus and it comes from a prayer of Jesus's. So Jesus is praying in the gospel of John. Now remember the gospels are the story of Jesus from different perspectives, from different theological journeys, different communities, the Gospel of John is probably our latest gospel, the latest story of Jesus, and it's been shaped uh, by the author. And in the Gospel of John, part of the story is Jesus praying, and he's praying before his arrest. So he's praying for his disciples. So the idea in the story is like, this is really important stuff. Like, this is what Jesus is talking with his Father in heaven. Again, a beautiful metaphor for God talking about what's important. And this is what he says in John 17, 21, Jesus says this, I pray that they will all be, what's the word? One. If you're at home, say it too. One. Just as you and I are one, as you are in me. Now remember, I think John is teaching us something here about God and Jesus. I don't get caught up in whether or not Jesus prayed this exact prayer. I think what is happening is John is shaping the story to say, this was what Jesus was all about. So Jesus is saying, I just pray that they're one, just like you are in me, Father, and I am in you. There's something about this reality. And, and, and for the Christian, for the follower of Jesus, particularly if you're part of confessional Christianity, we say this all the time, that Jesus was God in flesh. It's a great mystery. It's a statement of faith, right? But that's what Jesus is honing in on. Like, somehow, I'm in you and you're in me. But what's crazy is Jesus says, and may they be in us, so that the world will believe you sent me. So what Jesus offers to his disciples in this prayer is the same connectivity to the Father, the great caregiver, the householder of the world that he had. It's available to the disciples. And by extension, what John is saying is available to you, the ones who have chosen to follow this Jesus. So it's important to recognize that one of Jesus' prayers was that we would be one with God. And the interesting thing is, I think that 
the, the church environments that we grow up in, the religious environments that are part of our heritage, we bypass this because it scares us a little bit. This idea of being one with God just sounds a little too weird and new agey to us. It sounds just a little too strange. Yet, it's one of the cries of Jesus for his disciples. It's one of his prayers. It's like Jesus knew they struggle with this truth of their oneness with God. Now, Paul, who would come, you know, a few years after Jesus along, have an incredible conversion experience. He would write about it in his own words, in his letters. The writer of Acts, which is kind of the continuation of the Gospel of Luke, would tell us about this experience that Paul had and he tells us about Paul's journeys. And one day, Paul's in Athens, I believe. And he's, he's talking to this group of people. And he's trying to help them understand the true God, the oneness of God. And he sees this statue of, that's built to an unknown God. And so he stands up and he starts talking to them about this unknown God. Well, let me reveal this unknown God to you. And he's telling us things. And this is how he describes the unknown God, which to him is his God from his religion, Judaism. And he says, in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your poets have said, for we too are his offspring. So what Paul is saying is, there is this God that you don't know because you're just in this God. You don't recognize it. It's like the water you swim in if you're a fish. It's the air you're breathing. You don't think about it. It's just the reality of it. You're in this God. For Paul, one of the most important things he would ever write, and he says it over and over again, is in Christ, in Christ. I'm in Christ very physical. We are the body of Christ. There's this deep connective reality to the experience of God for the follower of Jesus. So Jesus says, be one with what is. <laughs> what, what, what Paul would say, we are functioning in already. It's like understanding and recognize that you have the oneness. You just don't, don't think about it all the time. You're not always connected or tuned into it. And in John 14, 10, Jesus had said to his disciples, right, this is a few chapters earlier, Philip had come to him and said, hey, show us the Father. Now, again, that, the Father's an engendered word for God. We know that God, that reality is spirit, that God is, holds both, holds the whole gender spectrum. And so if, you're, if that word Father is hard for you, I understand that. Just realize mother is equally correct. The idea for the gospel writers was that God, I think, is this divine householder of the world. I really love what, what one scholar talks about and uses that language, that, this, that, that God is the divine householder of the world, creating a just reality for all of the children of the world. And Philip says, show us that God. We want to see, reveal. And Jesus is like, what? What are you talking about, Philip? Jesus says this, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father's in me? See, it's such a hard thing for us to understand because we've set up all these barriers to God, right? Philip's part of a religion that says there's one room where the presence of God sits in, and once a year, one person gets to go in there, and we better tie a rope to their ankle and a bell just in case something happens so we can pull them out. And that's been thousands of years of tradition. So you think it's hard for them to get the truth, right? See, Jesus didn't come, by the way, to change God's mind about us. That metaphor, it's a metaphor. Jesus came to change our minds about God, to right the ship, right? Because we had put so many barriers up and we had established God in our image instead of us in the image of God. Jesus comes at just the right time for those of us who are sinners to say, here it is. This is what God is like. And part of what he says is, I'm one with this God and you can be one with this God. He says, don't you, don't you believe it? And the answer is, well, no, we don't believe it. <laughs> We've been told God's over there in this like, little room with this little box with these two wings, and it's right there in that little spot, and that's a dangerous place to be. 
And Jesus says, no, 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 the words I speak to you, I don't speak on my own. The Father who dwells in me is doing his work. <laughs> mind explode. We don't read that with the like mind exploding kind of like what John is saying Jesus is teaching and is all about. And so what John is, wants us to understand is that Jesus was the perfect example of oneness. He says, I want you to understand that this Jesus was one with the Father. When Jesus spoke, he was speaking the heart of the Father. And Jesus would say, you can have the same thing. And how did Jesus sustain this connection? Was it because he was like ontologically like different than us? He had different, different DNA, right? He had the mitochondria from the force flowing through him stronger than us. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I think it just means that Jesus sustained this reality because Jesus was so tuned in, he had this intimate connection with the Father through what we would call prayer, through that connective living vitalness. It was sustained over and over again. We have all kinds of, all kinds of reasons to think this from the life of Jesus. He, he just lived in tune with this great reality. So Jesus is saying, hey, I'm one with the Father, and you can be one with us. And the disciples are like, I don't know about that. That's kind of crazy talk. Because we got to do all these sacrifices and we got to do all these things. And Jesus is like, no, 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 hold on a second. So Paul comes along. Paul has an experience. Paul's starting to get this. I'm in Christ. I mean, he's radically shifted from the Judaism of his day and age to this Judaism that's grounded in Jesus, still a Jew, but grounded in Jesus. And he starts writing letters to churches that he established. And he establishes a, a, a church in this little area called Thessalonica. Thessaloniki. It's a little, I've actually been to Thessaloniki. Actually. I've been there once. I had a great meal. It was fantastic. And he establishes a church there. And, and 1 Thessalonians is probably the first letter that we have of Paul's. It's probably the oldest letter that we have of Paul's in the New Testament, by the way. Most, all, all scholars agree, this one actually came from the hand of Paul. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, Paul makes this crazy statement. Crazy, crazy statement. I mean, it's insane. He says this. He says, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Now, hold on a second, Paul. That's crazy talk. Because we know how you pray. You go to synagogue. You go to the temple. That's where prayers are. But how am I supposed to do that? I got to have a life. But Paul says pray without ceasing because he's understanding and he's developing a theology around life in Christ. And you know this. To do anything without ceasing requires incredible attention, incredible awareness. How many of you have ever ceased to love your spouse? Momentarily. You've ceased to love your child. You forgot. Oh, yeah, I've got to love you. And you have to be reminded of that, right? Let's be honest, right? It takes, there are things that we do without knowing it, without being attentive to it. We breathe, right? We breathe without ceasing. But we can focus on our breathing, and we can be attentive to it. And so here's what I think. I think prayer for Jesus and for us can be this thing that reorients our minds to our life in Christ, right? So, and this is all, let's just face it, this is all like language for followers of Jesus, the way we think about it, but it's reorienting my mind when all the distractions kick in, when all the pressures of life kick in, when work is kicking my tail, right? When I can't stand my neighbor, when my children are being children, Right, when I just feel overwhelmed, or when life is going great, when I just got the bonus and I can go get the car that I want, 
when I can just afford this, when all the good stuff is happening and we get distracted. Prayer reorients us to our life hidden in Christ. The letter of Colossians says this, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, reminder, everybody who read this letter was alive at the time of its writing and reading. It's a metaphor (laughs) that there's something about us in faith that dies so that we can live in Christ. And there's some pull to always go back to this old way of thinking. There's this pull to go back to seeing our lives and to experience and encountering other people in this old way of thinking and seeing. And then what we do is we reorient ourselves back into our life that's hidden in Christ through this idea of prayer. Prayer is reorienting. Think about the Lord's Prayer, right? The Our Father, if you've heard of that. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the power and the kingdom and the glory forever and ever, ever. Amen. That is a reorienting prayer. Go, go each section, right? Our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's a reorientation that I am not God and God is not me. I'm in God, but I'm not God. And that there is a separateness, but there's an intimacy, and I should always remember that reality. Our Father, I hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Oh yeah, not my will, but yours. It's a reorientation. All these, give us today our daily bread. It's a reorientation from the desire for more and more and more and more and consume and consume and consume while others don't have daily bread. See, prayer is reorienting back into this divine mind that we all live in, but we don't recognize sometimes. So prayer then is the intentional mindfulness of our oneness with God and all that is in God. It's not just my mindfulness that I'm in God and I can swim in this beautiful love, but I also have to recognize that everything else is in God. Everything else is in God. Yet God somehow exists in a transcendent way of it all. So good luck with that one. <laughs> but prayer like, says, okay, I'm going to intentionally be mindful. So peacemaking mindfulness, peacemaking prayer, is this awareness of God's presence in every moment, in every thought, in every action of every day. No problem, right? No problem whatsoever. That I'm to, I'm, I need to bring, if I'm going to be a peacemaker, if I'm going to commit to being a peacemaker, and that's going to guide my life, wholeness, peace, justice, inclusion, like this way of living, then I have to reorient my mind because I'm always going to be drawn away from that. So here's our rule number three. For a guy who doesn't like rules, I'm giving you a lot of rules this series, right? We're up to three. There's going to be seven when it's all said and done. Could you imagine? For a person who says the Bible's not a rule book, I'm going to give you seven rules to live by. And we're going to orient and organize all of our resources around these seven rules to help us live it out in our everyday normal lives in the years ahead. So pay attention. So rule number three in the, peace way, in, the, in the way of peace is this. Practice mindfulness. Practice mindfulness. Every day, be fully present with God in every moment. That I'm going to reorient myself. I'm going to choose to practice mindfulness, to be in the present moment. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 uh, says this. Whatever you do, so everything you do, do it from the heart as for the Lord and not for others. I think this applies, this is mindfulness. This is being aware that everything I do is an act of love for the world. It's an act of, of care for the world. It's an act of encounter with God. Everything, no matter what it is, whether I'm washing dishes, whether I'm mowing the lawn, whether I'm talking with my children or I'm talking with somebody else's kids, whether I'm with my spouse or my partner, whether I'm watching a movie, whether I'm sitting in church listening to a riveting sermon from a very handsome fellow. 
I'm going to do everything as under the Lord. So that's mindfulness. I started to learn about this idea of prayer and mindfulness as a teenager because I had a really good life, right? Most teenagers were having a lot of fun. I was reading. I was learning Latin. <laughs> good stuff. Had lots of dates in high school and junior high. It was exciting. But I read this little book called The Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. How many of y'all read this book? It's kind of a classic. He's a monk. And, and I learned very young because what didn't work for me was I'm going to set this time of prayer every day. I'm going to pray from 7 to 7.30. I'm going to pray for that. I'm going to, and people would say, I spent four hours in prayer today, and I just wanted to punch him in the face. It was a, not my peacemaking path, but that's what I wanted to do because didn't, it didn't work for me. So I read the practice of the presence of God, and the basic of the practice of the presence of God is like bring God into every moment with you. Wash the dishes for God. Not because God demands you to wash the dishes, but because that can bring purpose into washing the dishes. And that kind of shaped me. And one of the things that I loved to do as a teenager and in, in, in another life, it feels like, but I would sit at a piano and I would play and sing prayerful songs, like songs that were more written in like intimacy with God. It was just important for me. It was how I kind of reoriented myself. And it was way easier for me than like sitting in silence and praying. Because I don't know if you know it or not, I have a lot of words. So songs can take my words and shorten them, Right? And, and it's funny because when I think about those se that season of my life, I miss it sometimes. But there was one song that I remember always singing, and it was a song called All I Need. Now, I take all these things as metaphors today, but I still think it's really powerful. And here's what this song said, and it still sticks with me, year, I mean, decades later. This, it was an old gospel song. It said, so many distractions that pull me away, too many attractions that lead me astray. Now, in my early days of like moral theism, I would have thought, oh yeah, like listening to secular music, that's the attraction that leads me astray. <laughs> I want to go see that R-rated movie, right? But really, no, I mean, there's all these attractions that lead me out of the presence of God, out of living my life in Christ, because I just get distracted. But then I love these, this line in the song, it says, but you come to my senses, Lord, like literally my senses, Lord, I experience you, and you call me your friend. Like even now, when I think about my life as a teenager and feeling lonely at times, sitting at a piano that was out of tune, singing out of key, this sense that I'm the friend of God. I'm not a servant. I'm not unworthy. All that stuff sticking with me while I was being told by my faith tradition that I was unworthy, that I was a sinner, that I needed, that God had to punish somebody for me. But this is what would resonate with me. And then this, this line, oh my goodness, and now I'm back in your arms again. See, that's, I think, prayer, is to bring me back into the arms of God, which is a metaphor because God doesn't have arms. But you know that feeling of being in the arms of somebody you love and somebody who can hold you, who can carry you when you can't carry yourself. This beautiful song, and then the chorus just said, you alone are all I need. You hold my destiny. Like there was this sense that I could just be in this moment because even though everything was out of control, God was present in it and had everything under control. Like I don't believe God is into, into control, but it's under control. Like I just knew it. And that laid this foundation for, for me, a radical shift from everything I was hearing about prayer in my context of sit down with a journal. No, man, talk about a double whammy. Pray and then write about it. Oh my gosh, no way. 
and that there was this presence of God that would melt my defenses, the song would say, and you call me your friend, and I'm back in your arms. See, that I think is the beauty of prayer, and that's the invitation of mindfulness to recognize that there is a reality greater than anything we could ever imagine, yet more intimate than we could ever possibly dream of. And so in our everyday normal lives, here's some ways we can practice this, and I've got to wrap it up. First of all, we can treat every moment the same. So you want to practice mindfulness in your everyday normal life? Treat every moment the same. So treat no moment more carefully than any other moment. When you're getting dressed in the morning, treat it with care. Be attentive to what you're doing. How do the socks feel as you put them on your feet? How does the shirt feel as you put it on? The jacket, the coat, the clothes, be attentive to that moment. That is no greater or less of a moment of an experience with God as being attentive when you're sitting in church or when you're listening online or when you're reading your scriptures or when you're reading a blog or when you're engaging in the good work of fighting and rewriting the unacceptables. So treat every moment with the same dignity. Treat every moment with the same amount of care, because that will lead you to treating every person with the same amount of dignity, the same amount of care. Because let's face it, to us, some people are more about the way we treat, how we get dressed, and the thought we give to them because they frustrate us. And we treat some people like their scripture. It just all flows in. So mindfulness is about equaling everything out. So slow down. Here's something powerful about mindfulness I think we see in Jesus, is remember, mindfulness means experiencing the moment, taking your feelings, being mindful of what you're feeling in the moment, the thoughts that you have, and just embrace them without judgment. Like mindfulness, prayer is a judgment-free zone. So you sit down, and you start thinking about prayer, you start, you're in a moment, and you, you get angry, and you don't know why. Don't try to suppress that right away. Just live in the truth of it. Sit down, you have a naughty thought. <laughs> I don't know what I'm about that. Well, let's sit with it for a second. Why is that? Don't even ask why it is, it just is. Be present with it. Because here's the thing, like, your feelings, your realities, your, your experiences, your fears, your hopes, all those things are valid and true and authentic, and they're not too scary for the God of the universe. Perfect love casts out fear. We have nothing to be, be fearful of. And so if we'll hold our failures and just be with them, be mindful of them, we'll experience something very powerful. And it's that that starts to transform us. And then another real practical thing you can do is just carry a mindfulness token around with you. Right? So if you're like me and you get busy and you get going and maybe you're a type of personality that's a doer and you're just always going, 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 like do something physical with your personhood that will remind you to be mindful of the moment, to slow down. You know, it's a little, it's like the idea of the, the string around your finger so you don't forget to stop at the grocery store, right? What does that look like? You know, I'm not saying you got to put a big old cross or get a big old tattoo of, you know, mindfulness right here, you know, get a sleeve of it. But what could you do? Like, could it be the, your, you know, the, the background of your phone? Just something that only you know. Only you know about it. You know, it doesn't have to be overly religious. I mean, you know me, goodness gracious, right? But something that you take with you that's a physical reminder that God is with me. And I need to be more mindful. I don't need to invite God into my space. I need to enter into the space that God's invited me into already. And that's challenging. It's tricky. So that, that, that token can like bring us back to the deep truth 
that all things are hidden in Christ. This person who I'm frustrated with because they haven't lived up to my standard, whatever it might be, I've got to have that token to remind me that this person is made in the image of God and that I've chosen to live a life of faith that says I am to love everyone, my neighbor, my enemy, my friend, everyone. I have no option but to do that. And that's hard. We're going to fail at it. Y'all ever failed at loving somebody? We already went through that, right? And here's what's powerful about mindfulness and, and, and reframing prayer in this term, is that mindfulness, when we are aware of our oneness with God, when we are aware of our oneness with everyone else, you know what grows in this world and what grows in our hearts and our lives is compassion. If you read any writing on mindfulness that's written from any perspective, and that's the beauty of the idea of mindfulness, and that word is because it's universal amongst all the world religions, right? That mindfulness and prayer, like as we, as we enter into the oneness with God and all of God's creation, we grow compassion because we've learned to embrace our failures so we can embrace other people's failures. We've learned to embrace and be mindful of our pain and our suffering without judging it, so now I can embrace other people's pain and suffering without judging them. You see, over and over again in the story of Jesus throughout the Gospels, we find this little phrase that Jesus looked at the crowds and he was filled with compassion. And in that compassion, sometimes he would teach, sometimes he would heal, sometimes he would forgive, sometimes he would touch. Why? Because Jesus was a master at practicing mindfulness. He was aware of his oneness with the Father, with God, and in turn has invited us to live into that same oneness. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you a moment for mindfulness. As we wrap up, we're, we're, as Aisha said, we're not going to receive the offering today with the baskets or anything like that. We just want to create a space where we can just be mindful for a few moments. And so I have this image I'm going to put up on the screen here. And this image is just, it's, it's a guy who looks happy. <laughs> and so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you two minutes to just be completely present with that image and that word. And, I, and, and whatever your mind does, be mindful of your thoughts. Name your thought. So if you're watching this and you're like, oh, he's muscular, stick with that thought. <laughs> you don't have to reshape it. Maybe you look up there and you see happiness and you go, that's something I haven't had in a long time. Oh, I can't think like that. No, no, no. Just be mindful of it for a few moments. And then we're going to sing this song about being, not being in a hurry, even though we're a little late. It's perfect for today. And then I have a blessing to get us out of here. So just take a moment. Be mindful of the picture of the word and be present with God in it. Whatever happens, happens. That's the beauty of it. There's no right or wrong way to experience it. There's no right or wrong way. It just is. And God's present in the is.